Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. It says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sorry, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, what I want to remind you of is something we talked about a while back, but this is not the first time that Peter and Andrew meet Jesus. Again, you've got to be reminded, Matthew's not chronological. Matthew's going to be taking snippets from the life of Jesus to explain that Jesus is the descendant of Abraham, the son of David, the Christ. And if you try to read Matthew chronologically, it's going to mess you up. And I'm going to show you that some more of that tonight. We read like this is the first time Jesus calls his disciples. But actually, this is not their first encounter, Peter and Andrew's first encounter with Jesus. And if you read it, it just reads kind of strange. that He would walk along the sea, say, follow me. And they dropped everything and just followed him. And we've always read it that way. It's like, wow, they just, Jesus walks by and says, follow me. And they just follow him. Well, it makes more sense if you understand that they had already met Jesus. And actually a lot had gone on between them and Jesus before this account. Remember from what we've looked at, Jesus is, appears in Jerusalem and he's announced by John the Baptist. He's baptized. But then because of some issues in his hometown of Nazareth and so on, he leaves there and goes to Galilee. Does a whole bunch of miracles, as you know. Then he came back for a little bit. And as you're going to see that, and did the cleaning out of the temple and those types of things. And then eventually he went and set up his headquarters in Galilee, as we've already started. When Jesus goes back to Galilee is when he gathers the disciples. I'm going to say it this way, more permanently. Okay? So go with me back to John chapter 1. And let me remind you of Peter and Andrew's first encounter with Jesus. In John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. It says, The next day, again, John, this is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Now Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So this is when Andrew and Peter first meet Jesus. When they're there in the area of Jerusalem, and John the Baptist, who's preaching in the wilderness of Judea, points to Jesus and said, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Andrew was one of John the Baptist's disciples at that time. And when two of his disciples heard that, they left. One of those two was Andrew. He goes and gets his brother, Simon. We know him as Peter. He said, hey, we found the Christ. And he brought him and they met Jesus. So when we read in Matthew that Andrew and Peter are in the boat, you know, with their, uh, you know, mending their nets. That's not the first time they'd ever met Jesus. They had already met him back in Judea. Now they're back in Galilee, back fishing. Now, keep in mind, um, the same thing happens with James and John. 
We see in, in our, the passage we read that James and John appear that that's the first time they met Jesus in Matthew's account. But most likely it wasn't their first encounter with him either. Because most likely, and many people, and I lean in that direction, believe that Peter and John were also there in that area when Andrew and, and sorry, James and John were there when Peter and Andrew met Jesus. Because as you're going to see, they were partners in fishing. All right. So what I want to do is I want to take you back to Matthew chapter 4 and take a look again at the passage. Now keeping in mind that Jesus has already met Peter and Andrew prior to this. And let's read it again. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Knowing now that these guys had already met Jesus, this passage reads a whole lot different now, doesn't it? Doesn't read so wacky, doesn't read so strange. But actually, you still don't have all the information you need to really understand Matthew's account. Go back with me to John. Go back with me to John chapter 1. We're not going to read this section, but I'm just going to point some things out to you from it. You see, we see in John chapter 1, verse 43, after the section we just read, that Jesus decides to go from there to Galilee. He finds Philip, says to him, follow me. Philip from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip followed Nathaniel. Of course, Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? What happens in chapter 2? The, 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 turning the water into wine, the wedding in Galilee. But read, read closely what it says in chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his what? With his disciples. So some of the disciples, at least, are with Jesus at the wedding at Cana in Galilee, where they see him turn the water into wine. Go down to verse 13. You have your little headings in your Bibles. What happens next? Remember, John's chronological. He cleanses, cleanses the temple out. And his disciples remember, look at verse uh, 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that he had, Jesus had spoken. So his disciples are with him when he cleans the temple out. So don't miss this. Jesus had his disciples with him when he turned the water into wine. And when he cleaned the temple out the first time, because he does it at the end of his ministry as well. But... This all happens, John chapter 1, verse 29, through chapter 3, verse 24. Go to chapter 3, verse 24. All of this happens prior to what we're reading in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. Look at John chapter 3, verse 24. It says, for John had not yet been put in prison. Who's the John that's talking about this? John the Baptist. All right. So. John chapter 1, verse 29, or actually, verses, uh, yeah, verse 29 through chapter 3, verse 24, all happens before John the Baptist goes to, pri goes to prison, okay? So before John the Baptist goes to prison, Jesus has already met some of his disciples. Before John the Baptist goes to prison, some of his disciples are with him when he turns the water into wine at the wedding in Cana in Galilee. Before John goes to prison... Some disciples are with him when he cleans the temple out the first time. All right, now go back with me to Matthew chapter uh, 4 and look at verse 12. 
Now, when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Remember, we talked about this. After he hears that John the Baptist is arrested and the people are starting to go after him and now are going to go after Jesus a little bit, he sets his headquarters up in Galilee. Go to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and following. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were, with the, with, were in the boat with mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So when Jesus goes and sees them on the shore and says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, what had John and James and Peter and Andrew already experienced with Jesus? The wedding at Canaan in Galilee, they've already met him, they've already seen him clean the temple out. They've gone back to Galilee and they just go back to fishing with their dad. James and John do anyway, and Peter and Andrew are fishing and their partners, as you're going to see later on from the scriptures. They went back to fishing. But Jesus now, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, our passage for today, actually, when he walks along the shore and says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, he's not calling them for the first time. He's actually calling them to full-time discipleship instead of part-time discipleship. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm, I'm going to go into that in a little more detail in just a second. But doesn't that passage read a whole lot different now that you see the foundation? For years, I've had it taught to me that he just said, hey, follow me. And these guys go, okay. And they'd never, like they'd never met him before. But they had. And they had seen mighty miracles. And we'll come back to that in just a little bit. I want to take a quick second and deal with something that's in here that unfortunately, I've heard so much. Well, just when you don't use the whole of Scripture, you're going to start chasing rabbits and build theology that's horrible. All right? Jesus said, follow me. And James and John leave their father, Zebedee. Let me get your paying attention. Good for you. Miles is still awake. I like it. Zebedee. And they just go follow Jesus. And I've heard too many people say in the wrong way, I don't care about my family. I'm just going to serve the Lord. Well, let's be careful. Yes, Let's go to Matthew chapter 19 real quick. The Bible does say in Matthew chapter 19, verse 24. In Matthew 19, verse 24, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging uh, the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for My name's sake will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. So Jesus even said, if you've left your family, did I say 24? I'm sorry, it's 20, 28 and 29. I'm sorry. John chapter, Matthew chapter 19, let's look at it again. Let's just jump down to verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mothers or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. 
So yes, Jesus does say, for those who have left family to follow me, they'll be richly rewarded. But again, I've heard so many people say, I don't care about my family. They're just, you know, they're just, I'm going to follow Jesus. Sounds spiritual, doesn't it? But it doesn't match up with the whole of Scripture. Go with me to um, 1 Timothy chapter 5. As they're dealing with the whole topic of widows in the church and how to deal with widows in the church, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, look at verses 3 through 8. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 3, Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Isn't that interesting? Here now, the scripture says that if you as a believer don't take care of your family, you're like, you'd be treated like an unbeliever. You're not living as a Christian ought to. But didn't Jesus just say to leave mom and dad and follow him? Oh. Yeah, you're, you're, exactly. There may be a time when you have to choose between family and the Lord, and you better always choose the Lord. But don't just assume that you're going to follow the Lord. That means you have nothing to do with your family. Actually, let me take you to Mark chapter 5. Go to Mark chapter 5. Very interesting thing happens here in Mark 5. Look at verses 14 through 20. This is Jesus. He heals the demoniac and the demons leave the demoniac and they go into the pigs and the pigs run into the sea and commit Harry carry. And the herdsmen fled, verse 14 of Mark 5, and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he didn't permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Here this guy says, Lord, I'm ready to leave my family and leave my friends and leave my land and go follow you. And Jesus says, I want you to go home. I want you to go back to those people. And I want you to share the gospel in that area. And the man was obedient and faithful. And he went and shared in the Decapolis. And actually the gospel spread in that area tremendously because of this man's ministry. So folks, yes, I could easily convince you from Matthew chapter 19, verse 29, where God says, if you've left family for my name's sake, you'll be richly rewarded. And how that passage says they left their father Zebedee and went and followed Jesus and could convince you that who cares about your family? You serve the Lord now. But that's not what the whole of Scripture teaches, like you were sharing. The Bible does teach that there's going to come times where you have to choose between being obedient to Jesus 
or obedient to family. And in those instances, you need to say yes to Jesus and no to family. That'll become evident in just a little bit, and I'll show you some more of those passages in just a second. But don't think for a second that when you come to follow Jesus, that means I don't care about my family anymore. Actually, as a true follower of Jesus, it's going to be evident the most, if it's real, in my home. Doesn't the Bible say that as a preacher and a teacher of the word, as an elder in the church, an overseer, that I had to have first done it in my home before I can serve in the church? Don't let anybody tell you that they're being super spiritual and they don't care about their family because they're just serving God. Don't go down that road. That's not how God wants us to be. There may be some times, though, that you may have to choose. In those instances, be willing to say yes to Jesus and no to family. And we'll get to that in just a second. Go back now to, to, Mark, to Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to read to you that section again, verses 18 through 22. But now we're going to read it again, not only realizing that Peter and Andrew and James and John have met Jesus, we're going to read it again, realizing that Peter and John, and, and, sorry, Peter and Andrew and James and John have not only met Jesus, but they've seen the water turn to wine. They've seen the cleansing of the temple. They've, seen, they've been with him for a little bit as he's done some amazing things. So he's walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is, and he sees two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sorry, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. Like I touched on earlier, I believe what this account is, is Jesus calling his disciples to follow him full-time versus part-time. Now, we're going to talk about that in just a second, but we can't go there where I need to go until I give you Luke's account of this. So I've already shown you Matthew's account. We've read Mark's account. Luke's account gives us even more. Go to Luke chapter 5. Look at verses 1 through 11. It says, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large, enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. Any idea who the other partners were? James and John. To come and help them, and they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. 
So does Jesus call his disciples by just walking along the shore and say, come follow me? It reads totally different now when you put it all together. Actually, what happened in that encounter is, is hey, as he was walking along, he was teaching about the kingdom of God. There was a crowd of people there, and they start pressing in on him so he could, they wanted to hear what he had to say. So Jesus does something kind of interesting. He gives himself a little bit of space by getting in one of these boats that belonged to Peter. He goes out and lit into the water. By the way, for those of you that don't know this, there's another reason why Jesus, not just to get some space. Acoustically, sound carries across water tremendously. And he could stand in a boat and speak over the water, and the water would carry his voice out. But he just so happened to be in Simon Peter's boat, someone he'd already met. And he says, hey, I'm done preaching. Let's go out and catch some fish. Peter says, look, we fished all night. We see from the other accounts they were mending their nets, they were washing their nets, they were done fishing. But because you say so, we fished all night, I haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I'll do it. So they go out, throw the net out. They catch so many fish, they can't even bring it in. They have to call James and John to come help them. And they pull the net in. And Peter says, get away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. In other words, I realize even more your holiness and my sinfulness. You're the one that said this, and I didn't believe you were able to do it. And now you've proved again your power and your miracle. I've seen you turn the water into wine. I've seen you fulfill scripture by cleaning the temple out. I've seen you do some things. Now I see you do this. Lord, I'm a sinful man. I want you to get away from me. I'm not real comfortable in your presence. And Jesus says, from now on, I'm going to teach you how to be a fisher of man. You're going to catch men. And they left everything and followed him. Folks, do you understand the importance now even more about spending time reading the scriptures? Because the story reads so different now. When you put it all together and see all that's going on. Jesus had already revealed himself to them in many ways. The encounter that we read in Matthew that reads like he just said, Hey guys, come on! That isn't exactly how it read, how it actually happened. But when you put it all together, you realize Jesus was calling them from part-time following to full-time following. Now, here's where it gets to us. I believe God's calling us all from part-time following to full-time following. But don't run ahead of me. I'm not saying that he wants us to be pastors instead of school teachers or an engineer. I'm talking about wholehearted following versus part-time following. You remember, for some, he said, I want you to live your life by walking with me, going where I go, sleeping where I sleep. For others, he said to the man with the legion of demons that have been healed, I want you to go home. It's going to look different for all of us. But the question is, are you following Jesus full time? Or is he a part of your life? He doesn't want to be a part of your life. He wants to be everything. Well, Lord's number one in my life. He doesn't want to be number one. He wants to be number one, number two, number three. You understand what I'm saying? We would say number one, meaning he's one of many things, but he's first. But there's other things. He's first. No, no, no. He goes, I don't want to be first among other things. I want to be one, two, three, four. I want to be everything. I want to be all. And now what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you back to some very familiar scriptures and I want you to listen again to how they read when it comes to Jesus challenging us to follow him wholeheartedly. Now, before I do, let me just tell you, it is the Holy Spirit's job to show you 
how this plays out in your life. I think a lot of preachers, unfortunately, make a mistake by trying to play the Holy Spirit and tell you full-time following of Jesus is going to look like this. And they tell you what you should and shouldn't do, can and can't do. I believe the Holy Spirit's quite capable of showing me and you what following looks like. Because as you know, we've talked about it before, when he told Peter how he was going to die, Peter says, well, what about John? And what did Jesus say? What is that to you? What if I want him to remain alive until I return? You follow me. So when I talk to you now and I read to you these scriptures that talk about full-time following of Jesus, don't let anybody tell you what that looks like except Jesus. Okay? Go to Matthew chapter 19. Look at verses 27 through 30. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or fathers, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many are, who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So here he says that for some of us, following him is going to require what? By the way, there's a lot of answers to that question. Let's hear them. Some of us are going to follow, following Jesus is going to require what? What? Leaving what? Leaving houses? Family? It's going to require sacrifice. For some people, following him is going to look like moving to Thailand, like Jamie and Alyssa's dad and mom did. Some people, like Jamie and Alyssa, following Jesus means mom and dad go to Thailand and you don't, at least for a season. Following Jesus for all of us, folks, is going to look different. But for some, he's going to say to you, I want you to follow me, even if that means I move you a lot. Now, let's be honest. Some of us like the idea that most of us don't. Man, we want to get our piece of property we want to get our homestead, and we want to kind of get that place that is ours. And now there's nothing wrong with having such a place, as long as if Jesus says, you're done with it, you're okay. See, again, this is where the preacher says, you should never have the homestead. No, that's not the case. I could show you lots of examples in the scripture where people like Abraham, even though he followed Jesus, eventually developed great wealth and lands, and God's promised him homestead, if you will, for eternity. Having a homestead is not a bad thing. The question is, which is first, the homestead and your plans for the homestead, or following Jesus? For some, it's going to require moving. Go to Matthew chapter 8. Look at verses 18 through 22. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And the scribe, a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Another interesting passage here. First off, this guy comes and says, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. He said, do you understand that in doing so, uh, you're never going to be planted? Because where did Jesus live? 
Where was Jesus' house? He never had one. By the way, what was Jesus' estate sale? How did that look, by the way? His estate sale when he died. Well, you know, it, it's recorded in Scripture. There is an estate sale. It was his one piece of clothing that they cast lots for. That was it. He said, hey, that's fine that you want to follow me. Do you understand? In doing so, you may have nothing at the end of your life. Is that okay? By the way, for me, my wife will tell you that's good because I'm one of these rare, I'm a minimalist, man. If I just have a bed and a chair and a TV and football season and golf clubs, golf clubs, <laughs> that's right. Let's start over. Let's start over. Golf clubs, a bed and a chair. That's right. Oh, yeah. And one more thing. But then this guy comes and says, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, this is a very interesting situation. We've already talked about this a little bit. How does Jesus care about our families? Does he want us to care for our families? Yes. So Jesus can't be saying, hey, you follow me and ignore your family. That's not what the scripture teaches. But there are times that if it's a choice between the Lord and family, you've got to choose the Lord. Choose the Lord. Say, oh, I would always do that. Oh, let me ask you a question. In all my years of being a pastor, I've run into many a people who come to faith in Jesus, and then we show them from the scriptures that the Bible says that when you come to faith in Jesus, the first thing you're to do is to be baptized, to be identify with him publicly by immersion. And I don't know how many people over the years say, I can't do that, because that'll hurt my mama. See, my mama baptized me when I was a baby in this other church. And if I go and get another baptism, that'll hurt my mama. I can't do that. You know what? You let the dead go bury the dead. You come and follow me. Are you going to follow me or are you going to follow mama? Well, does the dead refer to people that are dead in Christ? They, they not dead in Christ, but dead in... They're not dead. dead in Christ, so they're dead. Let them bury their dead. Exactly. And that's part of what it's talking about as well. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that we have to say, oh, I got nothing to do with you because you're not in Christ. But at the same time... There's that element of, you follow me, you follow me, you got to understand, you're going to have to let some things go. This person hadn't said, look, my dad just died, the funeral's tomorrow, can I bury him real quick? That's not, the, that's not what's going on. He's saying, as soon as my dad dies, I'll come follow you. Do you understand what I'm saying? See, we've read this all these years that, dad just died, the funeral's tomorrow, can I bury him and then I'll follow you? No, 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 that's not what he's saying. The man's saying, as soon as my dad dies, you got all my attention, Lord. Jesus says, you let those who are outside deal with those who are outside. You come and follow me. Go to Matthew chapter 16. Look at verses 24 through 27. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Well, what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Now, here Jesus said, if anyone will come after me, he is to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, I want to talk to you real quick about denying yourself because there's been a lot of teaching on this that I think is incorrect. In the context, we see what denying yourself means. 
Denying yourself means you don't put any confidence in your own self to save you. You say, no, denying myself is saying no to meat during, uh, or chocolate during Lent. Or denying myself is not watching television but being focused on the Lord. No, 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 no. Go with me to Colossians chapter 2 real quick. Colossians chapter 2. We'll start in verse 20. Now we'll back up. Go to verse 16. Start in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on in detail about visions and puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that's from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. Oh, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So here the scripture clearly says that if you think you're going to become more righteous by denying yourself certain things, no, actually, if you deny yourself certain things in hopes of making yourself more righteous, you're actually doing the opposite of denying yourself. You're putting confidence in yourself and your ability to do things to make yourself right with God. Folks, denying yourself takes on two different, uh, actually, they're, they're intertwined, two different ways, but they're intertwined. One is this, first and foremost, in order to be saved, you have to say, I can't save myself. I need Jesus to give it to me. But then after you're saved, you have to daily lay yourself, your flesh, on the altar and say, Lord, I can't even live the Christian life, but you can and you will through me. And I'm denying myself and I'm going to take up my cross daily. That's dying to self. Jesus humbled himself even to death on a cross. People have said, oh, well... I've got a nagging wife. That's my cross to bear. No, no, no. That's not your cross to bear. I've got a bad jo a job and a horrible boss. That's my cross to bear. Or I've got a bad knee. That's my cross to bear. No, these are all things you didn't choose. Well, maybe you chose the nagging wife. But, but, but <laughs> listen, for it to be your cross, it's something you choose. Jesus willingly chose the role the Father gave to him. And he humbled himself and denied himself. Oh, he could have claimed equality with God, something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he took the role of a servant and he submitted himself to the Father. You want to deny yourself? You have to say, Lord, I can't save myself. Lord, I can't live the Christian life. But you said you'd give me righteousness. You said you would finish what you started. You said you would do this work in me. And you said, as I yield myself to you on a daily basis, you'll empower me to live this life. And I am trusting in you alone. See, it's easy to say, well, I've left homes and I've left family and I've, oh, guess what? Whoever's saying I've, I've, I've has not denied themselves. You understand what I'm saying? See, we get focused on the, did you drink? 
did you do this? Do you watch that TV show? Do you understand what I'm saying? We get focused on all this stuff that ultimately comes down to, do we follow Jesus? And are we trusting in him? Go to Matthew chapter 6. Look at verses 19 through 21 and then verse 24. Jesus said, don't lay up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal or hurricanes come and destroy. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust nor Hurricane Florence will touch and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Go down to verse 24. No one can serve two masters for either he'll hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. Folks, we started this by talking about the fact that Jesus was calling his disciples to full-time following, not part-time. They had seen him do many amazing things already, and he was challenging them to make him everything, even if that means dad will take care of the business. What about you? Is he calling you to a deeper walk? I promise you he is, because he's doing that every day. That's why daily we have to lay our flesh on the altar. That's why daily his mercies are new every morning. That's why daily he says to us, come, follow me. Come and follow me. Now, listen closely. Be willing to follow, but let Jesus show you carefully, carefully now, as you go, what following him looks like for you. See, when you hear this kind of a message, the preacher now wants you to come and walk an aisle, sign a pledge card, commit to doing something for the rest of your life. I say to you tonight, no, surrender, but then let Jesus show you what that surrender looks like today. Go to John chapter 16, look at verse 12. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all the truth. For he's not going to speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he'll speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Do you see it? Jesus said, look, I could tell you everything that's going to be involved in following me. You couldn't handle it. How many of us were taught to sing, I surrender all. I surrender all, all to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. And then we, in our hearts, said, okay, Lord, it's all yours. And then, how do we do? Actually, there's nothing wrong with singing I surrender all if you understand I surrender all means whatever you want is yours. But he'll tell you what it is he's looking for a day at a time. You understand? See, because the moment we turn, I surrender all into, Lord, I am going to give. Be careful. You're now no longer denying yourself. You're putting confidence in your ability to impress the Lord. Lord, it's all yours. I dedicated, Becky and I both dedicated our children years ago when they were babies. We've even got the pictures. 
We took them back many times since then and had to give them back again. And there may be, as things continue, if Jesus tarries, other episodes where we'll take them back and then we'll have to give them back again. But he knows. It's when we stop giving them back. It's when we stop giving whatever it is back that we stop following Jesus. He's calling you to follow him full time now. What that looks like, he will show you. Go to Mark chapter 4. Sorry, Matthew chapter 4. Forgot what book we were in for a minute. Go to Matthew chapter 4, look at verses 23 through 25. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains and those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics. And he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Jesus now goes throughout all of Galilee proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. In doing so, though, he healed people and he cast out demons. This is for a reason. There's something I want you to see here tonight as we look at this next section of Matthew. When Jesus comes, he's preaching the gospel of what? The gospel of the kingdom. He's announcing the kingdom, the promised coming kingdom and the coming king. He's announcing the kingdom and the good news of the kingdom. And when he does, he casts out demons. He heals people. And the reason he's doing that is he's showing them that the kingdom of God is greater than the kingdom of Satan. Remember who, who was the king of the earth at this time? Who was the ruler of this world and the prince of the power of the air? Jesus comes on and he says, let me just show you something. Let me tell you something. The kingdom of God is at hand. And you want evidence that the kingdom of God is greater than the kingdom of Satan? He starts casting Satan out and the demons out, healing people of their sicknesses, which were tied to Satan's activities. Well, go, don't take my word for it. Go to Matthew chapter 12. Look at verses 22 through 32. Matthew chapter 12. Verses 22 through 32. It says, Then a demon-possessed man, or oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and he saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? By the way, when they say, Can this be the son of David? What are they saying? Is this the Messiah, the promised one, who is going to come? Remember, there's going to be a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from that shoot is going to produce. He's going to be a son of David. He's going to be a descendant of David, and he's going to come and sit on David's throne. He's going to set up his kingdom. I think you understand about the kingdom a little bit more now. So they're saying, is this the promised Messiah? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. By the way, we always thought one of the forefathers in the revolution was the first one to say that a kingdom divided itself against itself cannot stand. It was Abraham Lincoln. Is that what it was? He was quoting the scripture. Exactly. And say, if Satan casts out Satan, Jesus said, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? 
And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they'll be your judges. But look at verse next verse here. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus says, you think I'm doing this by Satan? That's a kingdom against itself. That kingdom is not going to stand. But if I'm doing this by the Spirit of God, then you'll realize the kingdom of God is upon you. And that's why he was doing the miracles. Listen to me, folks. I believe without question the Bible teaches, and I've seen it experienced as well, that God still does the miraculous. God's power is still there and available. And there are times when he chooses for his purposes to do the miraculous. To demonstrate, though, that the kingdom of God is greater than the kingdom of Satan in the areas to provide an opportunity for the message to be preached about salvation in God's coming kingdom. Beware of those who turn their ministry into just casting out demons or their ministry into just healing people. That's not what it's about. It's to show that the kingdom of God is greater than the kingdom of Satan and provide the opportunity for the gospel to be preached. Because what good would it do to have someone have a demon cast out, but they not get saved? Actually, if you go on, you'll find where Jesus talks and he says, look, if you clean the house of a demon and it sits there empty, <laughs> seven more are going to come back in and be worse than he was in the beginning. So it's not about the miracle. Watch out for those who are about the miracle. And my ministry is a miracle ministry and my ministry is about healing people. Be careful. That's not what it's about. This is to show that the kingdom of God is greater than the kingdom of Satan and provide an opportunity for people to hear the good news about how they can enter that kingdom through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Yeah, exactly. Why do they not go to the hospital is right. Um, you know what's also interesting? The Pharisees, when these people start saying, could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah? Instead of the Pharisees being excited about the possibility that the prophesied one has come, they start saying, no, 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 he's doing this by Satan. But go with me to John chapter 3, because we're going to go somewhere tonight that we have to, in the time we have left, deal with, because it's very, very, very important. In John chapter 3, look at verses 1 and 2. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Oh, by the way, who's Nicodemus? He's a part of what group? The Pharisees. And does he say, I know that you're from God? Or does he say, we know you're from God? We know you're from God. So the Pharisees knew that he was from God, yet they still said, Satan's doing this. This is going to take us somewhere. Go to Matthew chapter 9. By the way, in that passage in Matthew chapter 12, that wasn't the first time they accused him of casting out by demons. They did it earlier in Matthew chapter 9. Look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 32 through 34. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. 
But the Pharisees said he cast out demons by the prince of demons. You say, wait a minute, Jim, isn't that the same thing? And actually, it's another opportunity because actually both accounts were in Matthew. These are two separate episodes, but they've already, again, they said, no, he's doing this. The Pharisees said he's doing this by Satan. But John, the, uh, sorry, Nicodemus in John chapter 3 tipped their hand and told us they knew he was from God. When God opens your eyes to the truth and you reject the Holy Spirit's work in your life, listen closely, this is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This is serious. When God opens your eyes to the truth, go back to Matthew chapter 12 in the passage that I just read to you. We just read in verses 22 through 30. Let me read to you verses 31 and following. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. We need to deal tonight as we close the time we have left with this topic of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And I want you to understand it. I'm going to show it to you from Scripture. The Bible says that Jesus died on the cross to cover all sin. But Jesus clarifies it and said the only sin not already covered by the blood of Christ, the only sin that is not forgiven is when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to the truth about who Jesus is, and you walk away. Jesus already was on the cross, reconciling man to himself, not counting men's sins against them. The Bible said that he actually was paying the penalty for, God, for, for man's sin. Colossians chapter uh, 2 talks about that. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 talks about that. The Bible says very clearly that he, at that time, was God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid for the sins of the whole world. That doesn't mean the whole world's automatically going to heaven. They now have to receive that forgiveness that's already been paid for. It's already been offered. It's a gift. They have to receive it. Oh, but there's one thing that wasn't covered on the cross. And that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If God opens your eyes to the truth, and you know the truth, but you choose to ignore it, the Bible says you're in trouble. I'm going to let the scripture speak along that line. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verses 26 through 31. It says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. By the way, this is hearing the knowledge of the truth and knowing about salvation and not responding appropriately to it. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Don't miss this. By the way, you've got to understand the gospel for this passage to make sense and some others to make sense. 
at that moment that Jesus died on the cross, he covered the sins of the world. The world was forgiven of their sins. Doesn't mean they're automatically in heaven. But in God's eyes, the sin of the world had been paid for. It was reconciled on his side of the ledger. Now the message is, he's already forgiven you. You be reconciled to God by receiving this free gift. It's already been paid for. That's why he said, when you understand the knowledge of the truth, that Jesus already paid for your sins, that the only way you can be reconciled to God is through faith in Jesus Christ. And God opens your eyes to this truth. And God's the only one that can open our eyes to this truth. You trample underfoot the blood of the covenant which has already sanctified you when you reject this and there's no other sacrifice for sin. All you got left now is a fearful expectation of judgment. Go to Hebrews chapter 6. Look at verses 4 through 9. It says, For it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding Him up to contempt. Now people say, well, this sounds like people that were saved and lost their salvation. No. Remember, the Bible's so clear. Jesus said, I will lose none that the Father has given me. If you have truly been born again, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit, kept by God, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and following, Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who are being shielded by God's power until the, until the coming of the salvation. Oh, folks, doesn't that sound pretty clear? That we've been born again. We've been given this living hope. We're being held on to by God. If you're truly born again and He's given you His Spirit, you can't lose that. But if you've had your eyes open to the truth, you've tasted of the heavenly gift. doesn't mean you ate it. It doesn't mean you swallowed. You might have tasted it and spit it out. And that's the only thing not covered. All you got left is a fearful expectation of judgment. Well, what about those Jews who have never heard? I don't believe the Bible teaches there's any such person. Go to John chapter 6 and I'll show you what I mean. Go to John chapter 6. Look at verses 44 and 45. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will... What's that next word? How many? They will all be taught by God. But everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Everybody hears, folks. In some way, shape, or form, in some way or another, everybody hears. Either the creation, He's revealed Himself through the creation, they all are without excuse. Romans 2 goes on and says that it, he's written his law in people's hearts, even if they've ever heard the law of God. He's written his law in their hearts, their consciences, so them whether or not they're lawbreakers. And then he goes on at the end of that chapter and says that God will judge all men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as the gospel declares. Romans chapter 10, where we love to say, well, how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? Keep reading. It then goes on and a few verses later and says, did they not hear? Of course they did. His word has gone out into all the earth. Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul describes this gospel as this gospel which has been preached in all creation. 
In some way, shape, or form, everybody hears. And when God opens your eyes and you know the truth and you've tasted of the heavenly gift because God's shown you the truth, the powers to be and the life to come, and you know this is real, but because of family or friends or things of this world or he's not the God I want him to be, the Bible says there's seed that falls on the rocky soil, springs up. They understood, but it never took real root. Well, go to John chapter 2. Look at verses 23 and 24. Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his own part, didn't entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Here they believed in him, but he goes, nope, I know it's not real. I know it's not real. Many of us over the years have been totally floored by people that we thought were Christians. And then later in life, they walked away. Do you realize when Jesus in the upper room on that last night before he was crucified said, one of you guys is going to deny me, and nobody had any idea that it was Judas? Nobody had a clue. Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And then the Bible says that when Judas says it's me and Jesus says, you said it, Go do what you're going to do. The Bible says that the disciples thought Jesus, Judas was going over to do with something about the money. They still had no idea. There's going to be those that are among us that aren't of us. What about you? Is your calling and election sure? Or are you just a part-time follower? The Bible says there's going to be many that thought they were followers, but they were just part-time followers, and Jesus never sealed the deal. I think Jesus said, unless you forsake all, you can't be my disciple. Go to John chapter 15. This is a very interesting passage here in John 15. Look at verses 22 through 25. I don't have time to break this down because we're about to close here, but look at what he says. Jesus said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Now, he's not saying that if we don't tell them, then they're okay. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. That's not what he's saying. But what he was simply saying is this. The fact that I've come and shown them these things, they're even more guilty now. Because they have seen and they've seen a lot. Remember we talked about, well, into Capernaum and Galilee because the miracle's done in you. If we understand the gospel, by the way, if you understand the gospel, is that because you're smart or you figured it out? That's because God opened your eyes. The Holy Spirit did a work. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Flesh and blood didn't open your eyes. Oh, no, Jim, the reason I believe is because you explained it so well. You have no clue. And if you're like my family, they tell me every night when I go home, you said this wrong, you made this mistake. Thank God he does his work, even through a guy that stutters and says, go to a wrong book. All right. If we understand the gospel, God's opened our eyes. But we must respond in faith. We must humble ourselves, admit, confess our sin in need of salvation, and submit by faith to God's only way of salvation. And what's that? Faith 
alone in Jesus Christ. I love you. We'll see you next week.